We are a band of thieves. But let us not pretend that our cause is noble, uh, that we're Robin Hood and his merrily band. But we are thieves like Prince John. You remember Prince John, the villain who attempted to steal the throne of King Richard? We are thieves as we attempt to supplant God and steal his throne and glory in our lives. The loving and generous God has granted us everything, has given us everything. Some he's given health. Some he's given wealth. He's given us time. He's given us treasures. He's given us talents. All of this he's bestowed upon us freely. God has given us numerous opportunities to use all the things that he has given, even life itself, every breath that we take. He's given us numerous opportunities to use them to serve him and to glorify him, to love him, to love him by using those gifts to bless others. I mean, that is the chief end of man, of all humanity, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, using all the gifts that he has given us to love him, to love him, to thank him, and using those gifts to love others. That glorifies God. And in turn, when we use those gifts in those ways, it allows us to enjoy them to their fullest, to enjoy them properly. Yet we turn this common grace in which God gives all of us as a means to glorify, enrich, and prosper ourselves. We sit on God's throne attempting to orchestrate our lives for our own benefit and for our own glory. God gives us this grace, this life, and we turn to him and say, your grace is not sufficient. I want more. Now, this is absurd for you and I, because you and I have more than most. And we say, it's not enough. You're not enough, God. I need more. I want more. I can do more. That is the words and thoughts of thieves. Make no mistake, our Lord was crucified between two common criminals, two robbers justly accused and justly condemned, like you and I. In Luke 23, 35-38, the crowd and the robbers revile against Jesus. Here's what it says. And the people stood by, watching, doing nothing. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. For if he, is, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. Everyone, the crowd, watched. They didn't do anything. The rulers scoffed. They ridiculed. They reviled against him. The soldiers mocked and did the same thing. 
Pilate himself, distant from this moment. But he mocked Jesus by making sure that nameplate was put above him. Here's the king of the Jews. What did the two criminals hanging justly next to him do? These two whom all these things are directed toward Jesus. What did these two criminals do? Well, they joined in. Matthew 27, 44 says this, and the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now you may hear, I just heard Luke say one didn't. No, no. Luke just didn't tell the whole story. As Matthew didn't tell the whole story, just told part of it, part of it. But in this moment, everyone is reviling against Jesus. Everyone is mocking him, or they're silent and watching. We have two criminals hanging just like Jesus, grasping for every breath just like Jesus. And they have the, the strength and the energy. You know what? We should join in on this. This seems like some pretty good idea. Let's mock and criticize and rebuff this guy who's between us. Like, those are your dying words and thoughts. Let's go after him. Why would they do that? Why would they have this? Those two robbers represent all of us. You and I are robbers and thieves. Using God's gifts to steal for our own glory and to usurp them. Maybe they were thinking at this moment, hey, we're not as bad as this guy. That's stealing glory. Oh, perverse glory. But it's stealing glory. Romans 8, 7 says this. For the mind that is set on flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Here's the point of this scene. Everyone is hostile to God. They don't even recognize it's God. They're hostile. Even the thieves that are justly condemned are hostile to God. You and I are hostile to God. Everything about us wants to revile against him. We are thieves. We are rulers. We are the soldiers. We are all reviling against God in our sin and rebelling against his love. That's, I mean, that's the way to put it, right? You are rebelling against God's love. Not his rule, his love. Strange thing to rebel against. In the midst of all of this reviling, of all this venom, of all this hatred, hatred Jesus prays and intercedes. And we mentioned it last week. What does Jesus pray? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In the midst of all this hatred toward him, he prays for their forgiveness. Jesus, hanging there between heaven and earth, forgoes his divine authority and is fully representing us at the cross. He doesn't have an issue, or he doesn't proclaim divine forgiveness like he did before, but he pleads to the Father on their behalf. That's the stage. Last week I told you, here Jesus intercedes on our behalf. He doesn't declare forgiveness. He prays to the Father for our forgiveness. 
embodying all our sin and all the wrath of God upon him. And I told you, we don't need to forgive everyone. And maybe that didn't sit with you. Maybe that sat with you too well. And so, see, I don't need to forgive people. If you didn't hear it correctly, if you heard me say that. But you don't need to forgive everyone because forgiveness implies relationship. Relationship implies it's a two-way street. Things need to happen. And so Jesus only forgives those that repent. God only forgives that those that turn away from their hostility and turns back to him. Luke 17, 3-4. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns, you in, turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. But, you, but you're thinking in your mind, but, but pastor, uh, it's weird I just refer to myself as pastor. I <laughs> won't do that again. Uh, in, in the Lord's Prayer, uh, we, we say, right, forgive our debts as we forgive those who are dead, are dead against us, right? But we forget, we need to forgive. If we don't forget, our, our forgiveness sins aren't forgiven, right? That's what that means. No. How does Jesus forgive at the cross? How does he do it? He intercedes. He pleads. Repentance is always necessary for forgiveness to truly happen. But he is pretty willing to forgive at the cross, isn't he? In the midst of all his pain and the hatred toward him, what does he do? He intercedes in our behalf. He asks the Father, Father, they don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. That's an incredible willingness to forgive. Do you hang in pain and harm, willing and eager to forgive like Jesus? That it was, that's what it means to forgive like Jesus. Do you hold a grudge? Or are you eager for the forgiveness of others? Do you love all? Because God loves everyone. Do you pray for your enemies, those that harm you, your neighbors, your family? Do you pray, Father, forgive them? Yes. Maybe you need to pray, Lord, help me to have a willing heart. Help me. I want them to repent. Because that's in an instance what Jesus is asking at the cross. Lord, Help them repent. Help them repent. Do something. The story of Jesus and the criminals is really a case study on forgiveness and repentance. As the story continues, right, Jesus hangs on the cross. Luke records one, the words of one of the guilty criminals. This is what he says, Luke 23, 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. It's the same mocking, right? It's the same thing as the soldiers, as the rulers, as the crowds. Nor do, none of them understand this is the purpose why Jesus is on the cross. It's not to save himself. This is the purpose of his life. It's not to save himself, but to save others. To give others life. To give others 
the opportunity to repent and to forgive. His death was the key to their salvation. But then something happens, right? Something that Jesus prayed for happens right in this moment. Jesus, just a moment, prayed to the Father. Father, forgive them. And what happens? There's repentance on one side. There's repentance. Just what Jesus prayed for. Something happens right there. Luke 23, 40 through 41. But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, are we indeed, and we indeed justly, for we receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. The one robber rebukes the other. The one robber who was just rebuking and reviling against Jesus suddenly turns, suddenly his heart is changed, which Jesus just prayed for, and goes after the other robber. And he identifies several things about Jesus. Why would that robber do that? How could he do it? What logical reason in that moment would he just change like that? I mean, Jesus exerts no power on the cross, does he? Or no visible power. There might have been other moments to defend Jesus. Him performing miracles, healing people. Right there. Like, why would you revile against this guy? But on the cross? Jesus said it's his weakest moment. Seemingly unable to escape the angry vile and ridicule. Everyone has left Jesus. No one, no apostle, no disciple in that moment between his reviling and his repentance came up to him and offered him the truth. No one came up and spoke to him. Hey, do you know who Jesus is? Let me tell you who he is. No one spoke that to him. How does he do this? He didn't pray the prayer. He didn't observe four spiritual laws, did he? He made no confession at that moment before then. There's no, there's no time for the guy to come out of the cross and do some outwardly acts to show his faith. To prove his salvation or to earn his salvation. He doesn't have time for that. He just repents. It's the answered prayer of Jesus moments ago. The father saves the criminal with unmerited grace. This is a case study for us. This, this criminal represents us. This is how the father saves us. Not because we have this ability and it's this logical deduction like, you know what? I think Jesus is God. Not because of that. It's not because we go out and show the evidence of our faith. It's not necessarily because someone tells us all that. It's because God does something. God, Jesus, intercedes on our behalf. The Father sent the Holy Spirit in this person's heart, changed his heart in this moment, and made him confess something about the Son. I want you to understand that the divine will that Jesus has is not different than the divine will of the Father. Or the divine will of the Holy Spirit. It's one divine will. Jesus is not a lesser God. It's the same God. Very important to understand. 
Repentance happens, shows it to all. Grace, unmerited. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, just like everything else that we take and rob and steal from God. The Father sent the Spirit to change the heart condition. How do we know the repents? You just hear what he says. He confessed Jesus is God in that moment. Now, who, who else on earth confessed Jesus as God? They weren't many, were there? But in this moment, at Jesus' death, he confessed he's God. He says, do you not fear God? He didn't say to him, do you, do you, he didn't say, do you not fear punishment? Do you fear the punishment? What you do when you revile against God? It's not what he said. Do you not just fear God? Are you not worried about your consequences? That's not what he says. Do you acknowledge that, that God is, he acknowledges that God is judge and that judge is right next to you? He identifies Jesus as innocent. And owns his own sin. This is really important, this right? He owns his own sin. Like, I am justly condemned. I'm up here for a good reason. I deserve this. This man is not. And of course, we know that this man is up here because of all of us. This is why he's up here. And then he repents. There's a repentance. There's a sorrow for action. Repentance is a sorrow for action. Not just for being caught, but actual the action itself. And then it's also repentance is forsaking of that sin. Not just like, man, sorry I did it, but like, no, that's terrible that I did that. This is an awful thing that I've done and seen the depravity of yourself. That's repentance. A.W. Pink calls repentance this. A conscience active in the presence of God. A conscience active in the presence of God. An inward grief. Or inward grief of a conscience gripped by the Holy Spirit and turned to God. Here's the moment where you see that. At one moment, he's not active at all in his conscience in the presence of God. He doesn't know he's in the presence of God. But in the next, something happens and he realizes, whoa, I've done something terrible. I deserve to be here. He does not. This is God. My conscience is active. And what does this conscience active do? Confesses his own sin, goes against, what are you doing? Why are you doing it to this man? That's repentance. There's a change in action. The active conscience is always accompanied by faith, by trust. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says this, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by our Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. God chose this criminal, gave him his Holy Spirit, sanctified him by that Spirit, right? It's sanctifying him. That's what he's doing for us. He gives us his Holy Spirit. To begin to transform us. To turn our hearts towards God. And that is always accompanied with the outward, say, an outward and inward, I believe in you. I trust in you. God alone. 
I mean, there's, a, there's an intellectual grasp of this, but there's a heart grasp of this, that God changes us. Salvation also includes what Jesus is doing on the cross, right? Paying the penalties of our sins, allowing for restoration relationship. But it's the sanctification that happens, too, with the Holy Spirit. After his outward repentance, he humbly turns to Jesus and asks him, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, maybe you were confused, like, well, he wasn't really saying that Jesus was God. He was just saying, do not fear God. But this statement right here indicates that he knew who God, Jesus was in that moment. This moment was not just a defense of Jesus. It's not just a request. It's a proclamation of the good news. That criminal proclaims the good news on the cross. This is grace revealed in unmerited favor request. This is what the criminal says. I know I'm not worthy. I know I do not deserve anything. And I know who you are. Will you? And that's the stance of our repentance to God. I know I'm not worthy. I don't deserve anything. I know who you are. But here's the bottom line. We're all beggars. Will you? Will you do this? And the same type of repentance that allows Paul to reclaim in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Right? Paul understands in this, right? He's saying, listen, I'm not worthy. Your grace is sufficient. It's every, and sufficient is, is an inappropriate word, I think, for us because we make it seem just, well, it's just enough. No, it's... Efficient. It's more than enough. That's what, this, what he's trying to communicate. Right. It's everything I need is your grace. I will boast all and gladly in my weaknesses. I will proclaim my sin so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. His grace. God's grace is sufficient and is made perfect in our weakness. God's grace is all that we need. We can't add anything else to it. In our weakest moments, in the moments where we recognize we aren't in control, when we don't have the answers, that we are broken, that we are weak, that we are defenseless, that we need God. Those are the moments where we stop stealing from God. And those are the moments where we start glorifying Him. When we realize that God is is for all things, and gives us all things to glorify him, not to glorify us. That's when we stop stealing from God, only in our weakness, not in our merit, not in our ability, but by God's grace are we able to utter, Jesus, you're my Lord. Will you? The robber identifies and knows his weakness and knows he doesn't deserve God's grace, but he asks for it. He asks for God's grace. We ought to be a people that asks for God's grace. And what does he ask for? This is the grace that he asks for. Will you remember me? He asks for the grace to remember, to be remembered by the holy 
infinite one, the one who has all knowledge, who is eternal. He asks to be known by God. That is grace. That is salvation, to be known by him, the eternal mind, the eternal presence, to be known by him. And maybe he's just asking, we don't know. Maybe he's just asking, can you just remember me when you go on and when I die and I don't exist anymore? Maybe that's it. Or maybe he's understanding that this is what really is means to live. When God knows me, when God's in relationship with me, because knowledge in, in Scripture, this word knowledge, has a bigger connotation. It's, it's connected to sex, but it's connected to covenant knowledge with God. God's covenant knowledge, special people. He knows all people, but he knows his people. Will you remember me? Will you know me? He also knows that Jesus is a king, doesn't he? And he has a kingdom. And the fascinating thing that he knows in this moment, we don't know why he knows this, but he knows his kingdom is to come. Now, this, is, this is kind of like Abraham, right? You're about to kill uh, Isaac, right? I don't know what's going to happen, but I know God made a promise here. Jesus is on the cross, and he says, yeah, will you remember me when your kingdom comes, right? Like, what? What, what king? This guy's going to die. What kingdom's coming? But he knows that Jesus has a kingdom that is coming. Maybe he pronounces, maybe he knows that Jesus is going to die and resurrect and come back. Oh, I don't know. But he knows his kingdom is coming. And Jesus' response to this repentance, to this weakness, to this ask, he makes a promise to this thief with three important realities to this promise. He gives the thief more than he ever asked for. The thief asked for one thing, and Jesus gives him much more than that. What does he say in Luke 23, 43? He says, and he said to them, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Truly, the first thing he says is truly. This is that word that we say all the time at the end of prayers, amen. This is what it means, so be it. This is truth. This will happen. Jesus says, listen, this is going to happen. Mark my words. This is truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Three things. Today, there is an immediacy to his promise. He doesn't say, hey, someday, when we all die, and we get up there in heaven, well, we'll have a good time. No, he says, today, you're going to be with me in paradise. There's an immediacy that happens now. He doesn't have to wait for this promise. Those are my favorite kind of promises. Things that happen right now. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Nazareth, he enters the synagogue and reads the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and declares what? Today... This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. There's kind of an immediacy of things about Jesus. He doesn't wait around. Today, this will happen. The good news is immediate. The good news is the presence of Jesus. The good news and the grace of God is the acknowledgement that he is king, that he is Lord, that he is Savior, even when he's nailed to the cross. 
There's an immediacy of God's kingdom and the immediacy of his kingship. It's in every moment. God is king in every moment. And his kingdom is in every moment. We're present in that reality when we recognize that he is king in every moment. And his kingdom, and that he is present in every moment with us. His kingdom is present with us. Much as the same where Jesus enters the world and leaves the world, the immediacy of salvation is realized in his presence and his power. Think about when he's uh, born into this world. Luke 2.11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, Savior, who is Christ Lord. Jesus was the Savior of the world when he was a baby. That day. It wasn't, well, let's just wait for it. No, that day he is God's grace for us is for today. Today, unmerited grace for every one of us. Will you receive it? Will you repent? Today, will you will be with me. You will be with me. At the heart of the dilemma, why Jesus is on the cross, is that there is a broken relationship. We have turned and gone the other way. We have stolen God's throne. We have stolen his kingdom. We have stolen his gifts. There is a separation between us and God. We're hostile to him. And this holy and perfect God, who is distinct from all creation, cannot be in relationship with things that don't want to be in relationship, that turn away from him, and that aren't holy, that are sinful. Right? He banishes Adam and Eve from the garden because of the sin. Like, you can't be in relationship with me in the way that you think anymore. God never truly ban abandons Adam and Eve. He, he truly never abandons anyone who's still alive on this earth. This is his unmerited grace. Every moment and every breath we have, a chance to repent. That's unmerited grace. This is the curse of sin. It's the separation. We don't want to, but God, the rest of the story of Scripture is God doesn't want to be separated from us. So it goes about how to restore that relationship. And part of that restoration is he needs to pay the penalty for sin. Well, someone needs to pay the penalty for sin. It's either you or him. So he dies on the cross. Takes the wrath of God. Now, when I say wrath of God, is that the wrath of the Father? Yes. Is it the wrath of the Spirit? Yes. Is it the wrath of Jesus? Now, that's an interesting thing. Jesus on the cross is taking his own wrath. It's the same divine will. It's the same wrath. Jesus is angry at our sin on the cross. And what does he say? Father, forgive them. This is the gospel that God is with us. Jesus is with us all the time. This is the promise that Emmanuel, that's why he comes to the world, to restore this relationship. Jesus not only affirms that he will remember the thief, but that the day he will be in relationship with him. Restored relationship happens in forgiveness and repentance. That's reconciliation. That's what the cross begins to open up. The possibility 
of reconciliation. And for the thief who repented today, today you're in paradise. And that's the third promise, paradise. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And we find that all pleasures and delicacies of this world are all pointers and a metaphor to the true pleasure and the ultimate joy of being in relationship with God. Restored relationship, reconciled relationship with God. Paradise certainly points us to a heavenly reality that awaits for us. Where there's no sorrows, there's no pain. And everything is turned into joy. And everything is all pleasure, all-consuming presence of God. Our paradise is not just a place that we will go to. Our paradise, our joy, our pleasure is God. Paradise is a person being present with that person, Jesus. No one else was present with Jesus in that moment. But in that moment, the thief on the cross becomes present with the king of the universe. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is not just a promise to a thief next to Jesus on the cross. This is a promise to all thieves that by and through the unmerited and undeserved grace of God, through repentance, we can stop stealing from God for a moment and turn to him and say in our weakness, say to him, remember me. We can say to him, your grace is sufficient. You're all that I need. Jesus has prayed for our forgiveness. Jesus has paid the price for your forgiveness. God's grace is manifest through the gift of the Holy Spirit who changes our heart and leads us to repentance, which establishes and restores and renews relationship with God. The second word on the cross fulfills the first word on the cross in this proclamation of the good news. It's the, it's the fulfillment. This word, today you will be with me in paradise, is this, it's a fulfillment of the first word when Jesus says, this is what the gospel is in Mark 1.15 at the very beginning of his ministry. What does he say? The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Yes. What's that gospel? Jesus says, come to die for you. He's come to forgive you. He's come to restore your presence. He's come to be with you. He's come to be in relationship with you. May we pray for others to be forgiven while we ourselves repent and believe. Today, there is good news for thieves. There is good news. The bad news is tomorrow is a promise unless you repent today. Let's pray.